Now I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear good works mentioned. You know, as evangelical Christians, your thoughts would probably turn to Paul's thrilling words in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one can boast. And that, of course, is a, a glorious truth, and we we rightly rejoice in the wonder uh, of God's grace to us. You know, how reassuring it is to know, as I was trying to get across to the children, we don't have to try to earn our own salvation. We're not saved by our own works, by our own efforts, but by God's grace to us in Christ. However, if we're not careful, we can so emphasise that that we then have a slightly warped view of good works. I once uh, remember uh, hearing a preacher make the comment that good works aren't just things that we are not saved by. Good works aren't just things that we aren't saved by. We're not saved by them, but that's not all they are. Uh, so when you look at Ephesians um, 2, we find that that comment's absolutely right because um, Paul goes on saying verse, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, although we're not saved by good works, we have been saved for good works. We should be characterised by Good works. And I mention that because good works have already been referred to in this uh, letter, this letter to Titus. So I'm in chapter 2, verse 14. Paul said um, that, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, Jesus didn't only die to redeem us. It was also to make us a people who are zealous for good works. Being redeemed and being zealous for good works go hand in hand. The importance of of good works becomes a very prominent theme in this uh, third chapter uh, of Titus. It's woven into this this chapter. Now you you might remember from previous weeks that um, Richard showed a, a triangular diagram that depicted the relationship between grace at the top, faith and good works. Uh, And in this chapter, we'll find that although in many ways the works element is is the most prominent in that it keeps cropping up throughout the chapter, it's clearly presented in that context of God's grace to us and our faith in Christ. Just to remind you of the general context, Paul and Titus uh, had probably preached the gospel together on Crete. And when Paul moved on, he'd left Titus behind, took to work in the churches there. Uh, we read in chapter 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Then moving on into chapter 2, we find that besides putting things in order and appointing elders, Paul wanted Titus to teach teach the Cretan believers 
And, and in that chapter, he outlined what was to be taught uh, and ended up by saying, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And now as we move into chapter 3 this morning, we see a number of other things that Paul wanted Titus to do uh, as he remained in Crete. Uh, we see in verse 1, he wanted Titus to remind. And then in verse 8, he was to insist. Uh, in verse 9, he was to avoid. And in verse 10, he was to warn. So we'll consider the chapter under those four headings. So first he reminds. Uh, verse 1 begins with remind them. So Paul wasn't asking Titus to be original or, or novel. He was to tell the Cretan believers what they'd already heard. He was to hammer home what they should have already known. And I don't think we're to take it that that's because uh, the Cretans were particularly forgetful. Um, they had all sorts of uh, uh, unhelpful and uh, traits that, that, uh, that have been mentioned in previous weeks, but I don't think we're to take it that you can add forgetfulness uh, to those characteristics. The fact is that all of us can easily be forgetful when it comes to spiritual realities. I think that's borne out by the fact that the New Testament often speaks in terms of giving a reminder. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't go through the verses, but uh, we read of reminders being given nine times in, in, in Paul's letters and three times in Peter's letters. So clearly, whether it be in preaching and teaching or in our conversations with one another, there's a need to constantly be reminded of what we should already know. We forget, we let things slip, they become so familiar that they no longer grab us, they no longer have any traction with us, so we need to be reminded. So what was Titus to remind them of? Well, Peter went on to say, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, I won't look at each item uh, on that list uh, individually. We've actually considered some of them not so long ago in, in one Peter. But clearly, Paul is talking about appropriate Christian behaviour in this world. He's talking about the, the personal qualities that should characterise believers in Christ uh, these are the things that should be evident in, in our daily lives as we relate to people in this world. And this is very much at the works corner of that triangle, isn't it? Um, and you, you'll notice that included in the list we have to be ready for every good work. Um, good work in this context is, is doing that which is helpful to others. It's doing that which is a blessing to others and therefore pleasing to God and brings honour and glory to God. Now, it's very easy to read that phrase, be ready for every good work, in a very superficial way to be saying, try to do good if you can. You know, be, be, be helpful to others if, if you can. But it's actually much more challenging than that. You see, we're to be ready for every good work. That means to be 
in a state of readiness. It means to be expecting to do it, be, be prepared and ready to, to be doing good works. To be a bit like the, the fire brigades. You know, they don't say to themselves, well, if we happen to see a fire, we'll, we'll see what we can do about it. If it's not too bother, we'll perhaps splash a bit of water around. No, their, their very existence it is to be ready for the events of a fire. As soon as there's a fire, they respond, they spring into action. And that's what we should be like with, with good works. As soon as we see the need, we should be on the case. We, we should be ready to be engaging in good works whenever, the, the, whenever a need arises. It means to be alert. It means to be actively looking for opportunities for doing good. It means to be both willing and able to do good. And you notice that we're to be ready for every good work. The NIV has uh, be ready to do whatever is good. So we're not to be selective. This doesn't give us the option uh, of just doing, uh, doing good works that take our fancy. You know, we're not just to uh, do the ones that interest us or, or the ones that we enjoy or the ones that we feel, that we find satisfying. No, we're to be ready for every good work. And that's why I say that this is such a challenging requirement. I think it very much underlines the, uh, the question that Richard uh, asked last week. I don't need to remember, I, I do, because I made notes of it, because it struck me, because I knew I was repeating this. But he said, are we compassionate or just nice to people we like? Well, it's very easy to be nice to people you like, isn't it? But that's not, what we're, that's not what we're called for. We're to go far beyond that. We are to be ready and eager to do good to anyone who, who needs it. Genuine compassion does good to anyone who needs it, whenever they need it. And that's, that's a big ask, isn't it? That is challenging, but that's what we're, that's what we're to do. Next, we need to recognise that verses 1 and 2 are not merely stating a moral injunction. Paul isn't just urging Titus to remind them of a list of rules, uh, a list of laws, a, a, a sort of tick list of things to do. Uh, because you see, verse 3 begins with 4. So Paul's going on in verses 3 through to 7 to give the reason for being ready for every good work. You know how children hate it when their parents tell them to do something and they say why? And the answer comes back, just because or because I say so. Well, that, that doesn't command much respect. It doesn't give much motivation, does it? But you see, we're not just told that this is what we must do. We're given the reason. You know, there's a reason for being like that. And that's what uh, verses 3 to 7 go on to tell us. So you see, besides reminding them of, of the requirements, Titus was also to remind them of that reason. Titus wasn't just to say, remember you've got to do this, all this stuff. Remember you've got to do all this stuff because there's, there's a reason for it. And in a nutshell, that reason is the gospel. That, that's, that's the motive, that's the reason, that's what lies behind it. 
The reason is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the point that Paul particularly emphasises is that the gospel produces changed lives. You notice the, the progress, the progression throughout um, those verses. In verse 3 begins with, we ourselves were once. It's reminding them of what they once were. Verse 4 begins with, but when? That's what we once were, but something's happened. But when? And then verse 7, so that. Now that speaks of a, a transition from what we once were to what we are now and what brought that change about. It, when, when Paul says there, we ourselves, yeah, he's referring to himself, he's saying, that's true of me. Uh, he's referring to Titus, it's true of you too, Titus. It's true of all the believers in Crete. And it's true of us. It's true of every believer in Christ. Titus was to remind the Cretan believers of what they once were and the fact that they were just like everybody else in this fallen world. And that is foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Well, again, without going into specific details, um, that's the exact opposite of what Titus was to remind them to be like, wasn't it? You might say, is it unrealistic to expect such a change? Yet how could you begin to contemplate such a, a radical change in, in outlook and behaviour? How could such a complete about turn come about? You know, is Paul really being realistic? Is he expecting Titus to, to ask something that, that's realistic? It would need something pretty remarkable to have happened. It would require a, a dramatic intervention to have taken place. But you see, Paul and, and Titus did expect to see such a change because they knew that something remarkable had happened. Uh, as indicated by the word but, but when. You know, in real time, something had happened. And what was that? Well, we read that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared. Now, we, we saw last week in, uh, in chapter 2, you remember Richard was talking about the two appearings. And there in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, we, we saw the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation. That's the crucial intervention. Now, of course, um, you know, the goodness and loving kindness of God has always existed. That that's always been an, an essential, intrinsic characteristic of God. But you see, they appeared in history when God the Father sent his Son so that he appeared on earth and lived among us as a man. God's goodness, God's, God's kindness, God's love was made visible, it was made clear uh, as Jesus appeared among us as God made man. Now, of course, we're familiar with that. That's that sound Christian doctrine, isn't it? But how we need to, to be um, reminded of what an amazing thing that was, that 
that the Son of God, who eternally was God and was with God, should become a man uh, in order that, that God's goodness and love might be seen amongst us and so that he then might go to the cross and die for us. It's amazing. He's an amazing uh, declaration showing forth of God's goodness and loving kindness. Well, from verses 5 and 6, let's just briefly notice four things that we're told about that glorious intervention. And quite conveniently, they all begin with M. Um, I didn't even have to work that out. It just happened that way. So that's it's always nice when that happens. So firstly, we see the mission. Because Paul said, he saved us. Right? The, the message, uh, the, uh, the, the mission was to save us. That, that's why he intervened in this, in this way. It was to save us from what? Well, surely from what we once were, as we saw in verses, uh, uh, so outlined in verse 3, and, and from the consequences of what we once were. Secondly, we see the motive, because Paul said that he intervened to save us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He wasn't motivated by any good that he saw in us. He wasn't motivated by any worth that he saw in us, because there was none to be seen. There never will be any to be seen uh, in and of ourselves. No, he was motivated uh, by his own mercy. He was motivated to do this because he is good, because he is loving, because he is kind. That was the motive. And then thirdly, we see the method, because Paul said that he intervened to, sa- intervened to save us from what we once were by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Now, it'd be very easy to get bogged down in trying to untangle that statement and I'm, I'm not going to attempt to do that because I'm, I've got to cover a whole chapter in, in one session but clearly that speaks of a, a fresh start it spe- you know, washing speaks of cleansing regeneration or rebirth speaks of a, a new life renewal speaks of a, a new beginning so we have the sense here of the slate having been wiped clean. We have the sense of, of starting new. But that's not all there is to it. There's, there's much more to it than that. You see, if, if this was just talking about starting again and having a second chance, well, what reason is there to think that we'd do any better the next time? But that's not all there is to it. Because you see, we don't just have a second chance. We have a new start with the presence and help and power of the Holy Spirit. We're told the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on us richly. So we're not on our own. We're not trying to do it in our own strength by our own power. We have the Holy Spirit who from the starting point of of that new fresh beginning to then go on in his strength, in his power. So that's why this merciful intervention to save us can be expected to produce 
real changed lives. We're going forward on a, on a different basis, in a different way. We have the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, we see the means. Because Paul said that this was all through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for us. He rose from the dead in triumph. He ascended to heaven and he then poured out the Holy Spirit upon his church. So our salvation from beginning to end is through Jesus Christ. Once Titus had reminded them of what they'd been and and of that amazing intervention that God had made, he was then to remind them uh, that God had intervened for a purpose. And we see that from the words, so that, at the beginning of verse 7. Paul went on to say, uh, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now being justified, uh, that, that speaks of our new status before God. That by his grace in Christ, we've been forgiven, we're counted as righteous by God, But you see, following on from that new status before God, we also have a new relationship with God. We're heirs. Uh, And firstly, that tells us that we're now accepted as children in his family. We we were once his enemies. We were far away. But because we've been justified, we've now been brought to him. And we're brought into that relationship of being, being his children. We've got that relationship with him. But you see, it doesn't just say that we're children, but we're, we're heirs. So that tells us that we have an inheritance to look forward to. It's what Paul describes as the hope of eternal life. And that's a hope that will be fully realised when the, the second appearing comes about. You remember, again, last week, Richard spoke about that, that second appearing Chapter 2, verse 13 refers to it as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Titus was to remind them uh, of the lives that they should be living and why they should be doing it. Or like them, we need to remember what we once were. We need to remember what God has done for us and what we now are as a consequence of what he's done. He's looking forward to what we will be. You're probably panicking now, because that's one point down, and I don't know how long I've been going for, but it's, uh, it's quite a while, but the points do get shorter as we go along, so I still maintain that we won't be any longer than normal. So the next point is that uh, Titus was to insist, and we see that in verse 8, where Paul says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things. Or the NIV says stress these things. Um, A literal translation would be something like affirm strongly. Now Paul wasn't asking Titus uh, then to to make some suggestions. He wasn't asking him to float some ideas and see how they go down. No, these things had to be insisted upon. Titus was to be uncompromising about them. I think sometimes Christians can make the mistake 
of thinking that we need to be dogmatic about all sorts of things. You know, we have to have a position and we have to maintain that position. We, we have to insist on what we deem to be the Christian view on everything. And I think that leads to a very unappealing and unattractive brand of Christianity. However, the, the antidote to that mistake is not to not, 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 uh, not insist on anything. There are things that we have to insist upon. What was Titus to insist upon? Well, it was what Paul referred to as the saying. Uh, and by that, he's referring back to what he'd just been saying in verses 3 to 7, which we saw really was nothing less than the gospel of Christ. Why was Titus to insist on the gospel message? I think we see three reasons. Uh, firstly, Titus was to insist on the gospel message because of its authority. Paul said, the saying is trustworthy. And that doesn't just mean that it's true. Of course, it is true. But it doesn't just mean that it's true or reliable. You know, I could tell you that there's a yucca plant in one corner of our living room. And that's absolutely true. But it doesn't really matter, does it? But whether you believe me or not doesn't make a lot of difference. Whether it's true or not, doesn't make a lot of difference. But you see, in saying that the saying is trustworthy, it means that this saying is worthy of placing your, your trust in it. It's of, of vital importance. You, you, need to, you need to react to this. You need to respond to it. It calls you to depend upon it. It calls you to rely upon it. Um, Paul used the same word trustworthy back in chapter 1, verse 9 where he spoke of the trustworthy word as taught. And that doesn't just mean that the word that was taught was true. No, it, it was important. It was authoritative. It was to be obeyed. Paul said that was the basis for giving instruction in sound doctrine. And it was to rebuke those who contradict it. It's more than just being factually true. It carried with it an imperative to, to be trusted and to be obeyed. So that, that's the first reason for insisting on this. It's because what, it's what really matters. It's of vital importance. To, to, to not trust in it, it's folly. It's a matter of life and death. Your, your, your entire eternal spiritual destiny depends on whether or not you believe these things. That's why we insist on them. It's not because we're just wanting to be dogmatic and stroppy. It's because we want people to believe what they need to believe. The second reason for insisting on the gospel message uh, was because of its purpose. Paul went on to say, so that. So it was to insist on the gospel message because of what it leads to, because of what it produces. And what's that? Well, it's so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We're to stress the gospel so that we live the gospel. We're to stress the good that God has done to us so that we do good to others. And we see that relationship between grace, faith and works very clearly here, don't we? You know, that, that trustworthy saying, well, that, that concerns the gospel of God's grace that's to be insisted upon. So that 
those who have believed in God, that's those who have exercised faith uh, by, by trusting the gospel of God's grace, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So you see, God's grace produces faith. And true faith produces good works. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. But they, they hang together, they go together. One leads on to the other. So we see that triangle very clearly d- depicted there. God's grace produces faith and true faith produces good works. Now notice that having spoken before about being ready for every good work, back in verse 1, Paul is now speaking of being careful to devote yourselves to good works. That's ramped things up a, a notch or two, isn't it? You know, we're not just to be ready for good works, but we're to be devoted to good works. Um, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging. Um, am I devoted to good works? Yeah, how high is doing good to others on your list of priorities? Are you devoted? Very, very challenging. Uh, the third reason for insisting on the gospel message was because of its nature. Paul said these things are excellent and profitable for people. So the gospel is to be insisted upon, or partly because it's, it's excellent in itself, because God has graciously provided it, but also because it's profitable for people. God has provided the gospel to do people good. He's provided it because it meets the real, genuine needs of people. And the fact is that all people need the gospel. Um, not, not just, it's not just that non-Christians need, need to hear the gospel and respond to it, but Christians need the gospel to, to live by. We, we need to live by the gospel. It's profitable for all people. I think we're probably pretty well clued up on, on um, the, 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 the teaching of the gospel. We're clued up on the theology of the gospel. And we perhaps also uh, know a, a deep personal rejoicing in the gospel. But I think we're probably much weaker on its practical outworking for uh, the benefit of people. It's, it comes across very powerfully to me, at any rate, that this is profitable for people. And we have to ask ourselves, how people-centred are we? How concerned are we for the well-being of people? Um, Jesus certainly was, wasn't he? In uh, Matthew nine thirty-six. so we read, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. How people-centred are we? It's very easy, isn't it, when you think in terms of sharing the gospel, in the back of your mind you've got potential pew fodder. You've got more numbers. How concerned are we about the well-being of people? Third point uh, is avoid. Read there in verse 9. But avoid 
foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It could well be that these were the sorts of things that the the false teachers uh, on Crete uh, were were engaged in Uh, and Titus was here being told just not to get drawn in to those controversies and quarrels and so on what was the reason for that? well the reason was they are unprofitable and worthless exact opposite of the gospel isn't it? in in verse 8 we saw the gospel is excellent and profitable for people these distractions rather than being excellent are worthless Rather than being profitable, they're unprofitable. You can get into these quarrels, these arguments, these discussions, these dissensions, but they're not going to do people good. They're not going to meet people's needs. I don't know what your strategy is when the, uh, the JWs come knocking at the door. I have to confess, I'm, I'm always very torn. Uh, part of me wants to engage for the sake of, of the gospel, and part of me doesn't want to waste my time on what I know full well is almost certainly going to be a fruitless exercise. And in practice, what I actually do probably depends on how busy I am. Uh, if I'm busy at the time, I get rid of them as soon as possible. If I'm not too busy, then, uh, then I'll, I'll talk with them and try my best to present the gospel. I don't know about you, but whenever I do that, I always find that the conversation seems to degenerate into an argument about various points of doctrine. And no matter how much I set out wanting to hold Christ before them, I get into an argument about points of doctrine and I come away disappointed with myself because once again I've been drawn into that which is unprofitable and worthless. See, we, like Titus, need to heed Paul's advice and stress the gospel, insist on the gospel, and avoid quarrels when speaking to false teachers, or indeed when speaking to unbelievers. We need to be sure that we're very clear in presenting the gospel and avoid getting drawn into arguments and quarrels. Paul's advice is equally relevant to our our church life and our uh, our daily conversations. Uh, Tim Chester wrote a little uh, commentary on, on Titus and at one point he said, our preaching might stress the gospel, but our conversations often stress controversy. It's very easy, isn't it, to take great delight in, in discussing the latest controversy on the Christian scene, um, and that's not to say that, that there's no place for that, but you've got to ask yourself, is that excellent and profitable for people? Is that building believers up in the faith? And the answer's probably no, isn't it? And it's not just, um, not just controversies. We can get taken up perhaps with very obscure points of doctrine. And again, you have to ask yourself, how profitable is it for people? I remember once, um, a good many years ago now, I was at a Christian conference, and I was sat opposite a couple of 
lads at mealtime, they were probably in their mid-teens, and I was probably about 23, my great maturity, but um, one of them turned to the other and he said, are you a superlapsarian or an infralapsarian? And they then proceeded to have an earnest discussion on the pros and cons of those two positions. And I must admit, I thought, get a life. What's the matter with you? You're, you're teenagers. You really shouldn't be worrying about these things. But it was so important to them. They, they really were engaged in a very detailed discussion. Now, I, I dare say that's a question that there's a place for in the uh, rarefied atmosphere of theological college. There's perhaps a place for it. But you have to ask yourself, is it excellent for people? Is it profitable for people? We need to always ask ourselves, what's going to challenge unbelievers with the gospel? What's going to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ? Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, they won't. So avoid them and insist on the gospel. And then warn, verses uh, 10 to 11. Uh, we read there, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Uh, before Christmas we had stir up, didn't we? And that was a, a good thing. That that was a, an opportunity to share the gospel while, while stirring up Christmas pudding ingredients. Uh, there can be other times when stirring up is good. Uh, it's good if someone stirs you from your lethargy. It's good if someone stirs you to praise the Lord. It's good if someone stirs you to love and good works. Sometimes we need stirring up. But stirring up division uh, is not a good thing. Stirring up division in the body of Christ is a bad thing. Why is that? Well, it's because the unity of the church it is of paramount importance. Um, there's not time now, but if you read John 17, read, read much of Ephesians, that's all about the, the fact that, that we are one in Christ. We are one body. God's eternal plan through the death of Christ was that he should have a people for himself who are one in Christ so that our, our unity uh, displays and declares the wisdom and love of God in sending Christ. Now that's not to say that there must be no disagreements or, or no differences of opinion or, or different points of view. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, um, as we've seen. There are gospel truths that we must insist upon. But there are other matters of which there's room, uh, on which there's room for sincerely held differences of opinion. Unity means being in agreement on the things that must be insisted upon, but being willing to respect differing views on things that don't have to be insisted upon. You know, as a church, we've been 
working on producing our, our list of distinctives, haven't we? And that's an attempt to show that there are things that we believe as a church, but we recognise that other believers in Christ might view them differently. They might have a different point of view, a different perspective. And we don't insist that they share those beliefs. beliefs. But we want them to be aware that that's what we believe and to respect that position. That's the position held by the church. You see, that maintains the, church, the, the unity of the church. A person who stirs up division is one who either denies what should be insisted upon or insists upon something where a difference of opinion should be tolerated and respected. And that's serious for the life and witness of the church. That that's serious for the work of the gospel and for the honour of God. Because he's invested so much in the church. He's given his son to bring the church into being so that we can show his, his wisdom and his love. And if the church is divided, well that, that's spoiled, that's marred. We're failing in doing that. So the person who stirs up division is to be warned. It's not to be tolerated. And if that warning fails, well, then, then we're not to rush to take matters further. We're not to, uh, we're not to escalate it straight away. No. Like God Himself, we're to be patient and long-suffering. So a second warning is given. But if that fails, then Paul says, have nothing more to do with him. Now that might sound harsh. But after two warnings, if, if they're still stirring up division, then they've shown themselves, in Paul's words, to be warped and sinful. They, they, they stand self-condemned. How, how so? Well, if they care so little for the unity of the church, which is God's vehicle for, for, for the glory of his name and for the spread of the gospel, well, they've shown themselves to have shifted away from the gospel that they'd shown themselves to have no part in the church that the gospel brings into being. Well, let's pray that uh, this church never has to take those, those steps, uh, but let's also not be so naive as to think it can't happen here. Uh, we, we need to be aware of, of that possibility. Let's pray uh, that we never have to take such steps. Let, let's all work hard at maintaining the unity of the faith. And briefly in closing, um, verses 12 to 15, uh, we have Paul's final instructions and greetings. I'm not going to go into any detail there, but you notice that yet again that theme of good works pops up again. Uh, Paul can't, can't stop mentioning it, can he? Throughout the chapter, uh, it's, it's kept popping up. So he says there in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In verse 1 he told Titus to remind them to be ready for every good work. In verse 8 he upped the ante by saying, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. We're to be learning how to 
be devoted to good works. I don't think that means that we should have uh, training courses on doing good works. Um, although you never know, one Sunday evening one might, might come along. Um, I think what it means is that we're to learn to devote ourselves to good works through doing good works. It's learning on the job. The more we do it, the better we become at it. So we need to be constantly learning how to be devoted to uh, love and good works. The more we do it, the more we learn, and the better we become, so that we're more helpful and more fruitful. So, we're saved by grace. That's the root, R-O-O-T. We're saved through faith. That's another root, R-O-U-T-E. Let's not forget that we're saved for good works. And that's the fruit. Amen.